0: Thank you for tuning in to another edition of the Business of Fun podcast. I'm your host, Dave Wakeman. Today's episode is brought to you by my friends at Booking Protect, the global leaders in refund protection. Any listing, any sector, anywhere, Booking Protect has you covered with the world's most comprehensive refund protection product. To find out how you and your organization can partner with Booking Protect to deliver a better buying experience, more customization in their purchase path, a world-class customer service, digital customer service experience, and you can create a new revenue stream for your organization, visit them at www.bookingprotect.com. Once again, that's www.bookingprotect.com. My guest today is Tony Knopp, the CEO of Ticket Manager. I was super excited to have Tony on um, because we have an ongoing conversation going back many, many, many years, Um, and I wanted to have him on the podcast because I hadn't had the opportunity yet. And We went into a lot of different things. It was great. Um, I don't think this conversation is going to let you down at all. Uh, we talked about what Tony's up to at Ticket Manager. We talked about trends in tickets. We talked about what's next in tickets. We talked about how to manage a startup. We talked the ups and downs. We talked about uh, managing a startup. You know, especially some of the challenges that Tony and his team dealt with in getting Ticket Manager to a point that it is at today, where they have over a hundred employees all over the country, all over, and have. Uh, three, four hundred clients all over the world. Uh, We talked about sports tech. Um, We actually talked about something I think is going to be really, really um, either uh, interesting for people to hear or is going to set people off a little bit, which is Tony's suggestion not to go into ticket sales uh, unless you absolutely have to as a way to get into sports. Um, We covered just a tremendous amount of stuff. Uh, Decision-making, books, all kinds of stuff. And I think it was really, really uh, a great conversation. And it was really great to have Tony on the podcast. So without anything else, here's my conversation with Tony Knopp on The Business of Fun. I want to welcome Tony Knopp to The Business of Fun podcast. Tony, what is happening, man?
1: How are you, my friend? Thank you for having
0: me. Y'all, oh, man, I've been waiting a long time to do this, right? Because I, I, I who knew that people were going to listen to this podcast? So, <laughs> right. so, so now I can get
1: all the big hitters on. <laughs> I'll see if I can fix that and take you the other direction.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, it shouldn't take much, because I think if uh, we talk about some of the stuff we talk about regularly, uh, we're going to definitely shotgun some uh, some of the listenership. So we'll yeah, have at it, fun. though. that's But um, let's start. Where should we start? Maybe let's talk about... Um, You know, knowing you come to tickets from the tech side, let's talk about some of the trends that are like kind of people are dealing with right now, and maybe things that people aren't recognizing as having or going to have a big impact on their businesses. You know, over like the next like eighteen to twenty-four months.
1: Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's really interesting to watch these things happen and see how the fiefdoms are kind of breaking out when it comes to the ticketing landscape. Um, You know, a lot of people like to try to apply. Analogies to the ticketing world, such as airlines such as country clubs and other things, but you know a lot of those things have a lot a lot more abundant supply, and that supply is differentiated by where it is, how it is, and where you're going. so I think what a lot of people are seeing in technology here is first of all there are There is more money and dry powder sitting on the sidelines right now from the investor side trying to get into live events. They see what Live Nation is doing. They see what's happened with stuff growing into a $3 billion a year in sales business. They see what's happened in this business and they they like to look at it and say, look, we're looking for businesses that we don't feel have been really disrupted the way other businesses have over the last 20 years. And so they are pouring capital into ticketing technology. You see a new one every day. I mean, we saw one today with Ticket Fairy who, uh, according to their TechCrunch piece, is the single greatest invention in ticketing history, and I don't, I don't mean to say anything negative about it. I don't know anything about the business, but it was a very uh, it was a very hubris-filled um, piece that I read this morning. <laughs> I know uh, they have a great PR person. <laughs> they do. They definitely do. Uh, that, I, I've seen press releases that are less uh, less egregious than that. Uh, so basically what you're looking at is people are starting to understand the generational trends. You know, there's a lot of studies that are showing, and you you cite them regularly, that millennials like to, uh, they like to spend their money on experiences. And I think there's been a lot of misconception that that's kind of a new thing. But you and I both know, especially with your experience back in the day with American Express and some of the other brands, that boomers think that way too, and so does X. And so we're starting to see this this creation of more and more money, more and more interest in live events. And because of that, everybody's looking for the new way to disrupt that and to use their money to get involved in it. You know, much like Mark Stevens being involved with the Golden State Warriors and then shoving Kyle Lowry two nights ago. Um, What's going to be really interesting about that is seeing how the different pressures uh, in different countries around the globe are going to change the way we look at this market. So, you know, in the United States, you have a lot of pressure coming in from the compliance side. You have a lot of pressure coming in on the convenience side because we're competing with other things that you can do with your money. And then we have a lot of pressure coming in on you know, transparency, fees, and the like. And that's a very different conversation than what's happening in Europe, where you spend a lot of time doing consulting as well, where you know there is no resale, but the compliance pressure is very, very hard. And... They're trying to find a way to make technology bring us back to the way football and cricket and rugby used to be 20 years ago. And so for that reason, we see all these different startups popping up and and raising all of this money. And we're starting to see some of them fizzle out. Um, And there's there's really two thought processes as to what's going to happen here. Uh, The one thought process is there's going to be uh, one giant winner, and that giant winner is going to be supply and inventory driven. Right, Whether that's the vertically integrated player that's a live nation, whether somebody decides to vertically integrate with Axis by maybe putting them together with StubHub, who's for sale, and some others, and just creating these one-stop shops that control the venue, they control the talent, they control the event, they control the ticketing, they control all of that. But then there's also another belief, a contrarian side, where there's like billions of dollars that we're seeing getting poured in, where they believe that it's going to come down to native applications and consumer experience. They believe that the game times of the world, the today ticks of the world, the fan exchange of the world, these are the guys that are going to win. So I wish I was smart enough to tell you which is going to be the winner. But that's what we're seeing out in the marketplace right now. And that's why you're seeing consolidation where you have players like Providence Equity, you know, multi-billion dollar private equity firm that's bought up patron technologies and they've bought up ShowClicks and a number of other players. You've got GTCR with vivid seats buying up a bunch of businesses. You have StubHub for sale out there right now. You have Great Hill Partners who bought uh Today ticks. And you and I would look at that and think, I don't understand why you buy today ticks, but then when you pick up the hood and you look underneath it, you realize that there's five to eight million dollars in EBITDA just sitting under the on the table right there because they don't uh, transact the tickets. The way you pick up your tickets through them is to pick them up on the street on Broadway. So, you know, there is so much money pouring into this space that it'll be really interesting to see which route wins and how the incumbents fight this off.
0: Right. And I would say that if we go back and we touch on the thing about spending and the spending on experiences, mm-hmm. I would say that. Well, you and I both agree on this, that it's always been this where people have liked experiences. It's just that I think that the consumer purchasing power has decreased so much that people are just not buying stuff as much, nearly as much. Mm-hmm. And that when they do have any free um, discretionary spending to make, they do spend it on experience. So that makes it look like it's a huge new bubble, but really it's following the trend of less and Consumer spending power. So, which, if you're looking at things in the short term, maybe these experience apps, you know, like Game Time and so, like in we Go and all those, might win. But I, I hate, the, I hate the future of that with like how heavy they get discount things. Because I also feel like this is a huge problem where there's a race to the bottom in almost everything, and mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's very problematic for me. Um, you know, I, I don't know. We never talked about discounts before. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think you, agree, I think you agree that like that, that that's like sets so, so a bad precedent. And, um, you know, so it's, it's kind of, and uh, there's
1: a lot of belief in that, right? Yeah, Tim, my would agree with you across the board. Yeah. Say premium product, premium offering all the time. And that's, that's how we sell our product. Our product is a premium product. Yeah. We are apples and alligators. When we are selling ticket manager, we're anywhere from three to 10 times the cost of our competitors. Right. Um, and we often say, because look, you can go, you can find it cheaper somewhere else and we'll come in and fix it after a year. Yeah. Um, and I think you're, you're spot on in that, you know, there's a different level for each fan, but there are very core metrics, you know, sports on the field, on the ice, on the pitch has moved to an analytic baseline where they're doing a really good job of understanding that if we shift here, we're going to get more outs. If we have a better launch angle, we're going to do this and that, right? That all makes sense. But the teams aren't approaching it that way. They're not looking at a customer and saying, what is the lifetime value of this customer? What's our return on this customer when we bring them in? How much can we get out of them and all of these different things? And so... What they're really just looking at is this short-term, I'm concerned about the optics of having you know, X amount of tickets available and let's sell them for $3 like the Tampa Bay Devil Rays did. Or let's teach our customers that they can wait until the last minute and they can buy a ticket on game time or they can buy a ticket on score big or you know, whatever's out there. And I think you're totally right when you're looking at that. You're not creating the kind of customer that has a bigger value down the road. And what you and I have talked about a lot is – it takes a special circumstance, not a special circumstance, but a special person to really view it that way. Like, you really need somebody that's coming into the league that that's not using this as a passport stamp. Right. Because that's what happens too much in sports. I'm going to come be the VP of sales for the whatever hockey team for three years, and then I'm going to move up and get my 19th promotion in the last two years to whatever. I mean, the, the titles have gotten so absurd, I can't even keep up with them. You know, God of whatever, uh, you know. What you really need is somebody to sit down and say, look, this isn't about this season, next season, or following. This is about understanding what our customer base looks like, what our consumer base looks like, what we're going to get a return on that, and then how do we build a community around this. Right? And exactly there right. is room in that for some discounting, but not the way we're seeing it. Not let's blast email everybody in our 44 million person database, $5 tickets. It's, it's absurd. Yeah. Right. What you're looking at is saying, look, the business customer wants to spend X to sit in a better seat. But I think what gets lost a lot, and I'm curious your take on this, what gets lost a lot when they look at the business customer because there are a lot of things that I don't know. And I'm certainly happy to offer my opinion on them. But the one thing we do know is we know the corporate customer maybe better than anyone, right? We have 300 plus Fortune 1000 companies. We have a billion dollars in tickets a year that go through our site. We've got 30 million tickets. Like we see it. The average face value of a corporate customer's ticket is $168. That includes their april baseball games so you can only imagine how big that number is when you start talking about the real stuff they don't want to sit in the front row and pay for it if there's not a rowdy experience around them right period yes and that gets lost and so when you talk about discounting the discounting only needs to be done when it's a pathway to maximizing the revenue streams on all of the other channels and distribution channels you have and they don't have those right now right
0: Yeah, Yeah, the the way – and this is – it's interesting the way you described it because this is – it's an argument that gets made and it usually gets made sort of in a backhanded way or like a not completely honest way about, oh, we're not pricing to try to beat the secondary market. But you and I know (laughs) you're pricing to try to beat the secondary market. And then what you – and so what happens is you end up just burning the entire market. And then – so all you're doing is discounting for everybody and you end up losing – so much money um,
1: but he, I don't care Dave because I'm the senior vice president of sales for three years I just got to hit my number I've got to win the lo- the draft lottery I've got to take credit for the fact that the team wins for two years and I move on right and to go back to the point of like getting people and having a rowdy experience
0: I think another thing that skews this interpretation and the way people look at this is like well, what you said and I definitely want to get into the ticket sales rep game because you made a great (laughs) comment to me before, but is the TV money, right? And there's a book I've been pointing people to like almost religiously lately called The Club about the Premier Mm -hmm. League. I read it. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. Richard Scudamore is quoted in the book saying like, we got to have people in the stands because it makes a a poor backdrop for a TV show, right? And I don't think people in the States necessarily see that, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty open about coming from nightclubs, right? And the idea that like, if I get you into the building... I can make money off of you. And I, yeah. I, I know that's lost on everybody because everybody has their spreadsheet that, and their spreadsheet jockeying like crazy to go, well, I can charge you $45 for a t-shirt and X number of people to buy it. No, I want to charge you 10 or $12 for a t-shirt and I want everybody in the building to have one. I want them to have a hat. I want them to drink a couple beers. I want them to have a good time and come back. And if I only charge you $5 to get in all the time and a broker makes five dollars that five dollars that the broker made that's a marketing expense that I didn't have to mm-hmm. either I paid or I didn't have to incur and mm-hmm. you know and that's like you gotta look at it from like the whole fan but again I've been saying that for years so I don't have to tell you this um, <laughs> but you you bring up I think we have to talk about the, t- the ticket sales and getting into the tickets because you brought, you've alluded to this so many times, and I think it's like I think it'll just be funny for everybody to listen to us talk about this. And you, <laughs> you said don't go into ticket sales as a way to get into the, this business of sports. Tell me why.
1: Um. <clears throat> <laughs> I don't want to sound like I'm insulting anybody. So I want to make sure that I'm saying it diplomatically and out of, of the course. Course. Um just from my experience, because really all I can do is offer the experience that I've had for the last 20 years in this space, and we've been very blessed to do a lot of the things that we're doing. So what I see, unfortunately, is this overarching communication to youngsters coming up that whether you're coming out of undergrad or you're getting a sports administration, master's, or you're even getting an MBA, that the way in the door is through ticket sales. And I would say that that is a terrible disservice to an entire generation of people. Um, yes, there are a lot of really fantastic success stories of people who have started in ticket sales that have fantastic jobs wherever they've ended up. Um, it is not a bad job. It's a good job where people are treated well and, you know, you can you can learn what you learn there. But that's got to be your passion. And if it's not your passion, you absolutely should not do that. And I do believe that if you're talking about becoming a sales uh, professional across you know, multiple different enterprises across different industries, you're going to learn some bad habits in the ticket sales space, right? I mean, the reality is, you know, there's not a lot of 28-year-old, you know, senior vice presidents of sales who've had 19 promotions over the last eight years and wear four WWE belts when you're walking into American Express or you're walking into Wells Fargo, you're walking into Workday or you're walking into Google, right, where Mm -hmm. the account executives there are pulling a million five a year. they've got 15 years of experience and a lot of them have a graduate degree from a school that you think of so I think you've just got this you know and and it happened when I came out of school too and it's how I ended up in ticket sales you've got this overarching it's the only way in we've all heard that one story of the guy who was you know sitting in the LA Dodgers waiting room and wouldn't leave until somebody gave him a job and they eventually put him on the phone and he gritted and grinded his way all the way there Uh, you know or take that unpaid internship for three years and maybe you can find your way in I think that's a terrible disservice to the kids that are out there today I think you need to find what you're good at. You need to work at getting good at that into the position that you need. Um, and I think that the leverage just comes from those teams. Like the unfortunate reality is there's only 120 or so, you know, big five teams. So let's say 150 big five teams. At each one of those, you have at most five vice presidents on the revenue driving side. You know, we're really only talking about 700 jobs, 700 gigs nationwide. If you're willing to relocate multiple times and you and I know a lot of executives who've done that. Mm-hmm. There are... More than a thousand people making more money than all those guys at Bank of America today. Yes, in correct. one office. Uh huh. Right. That's exactly. And right. and and it leads to this you know kind of toxic environment where it feeds on itself and it 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 ties beautifully back to why are some of these sports and why are some of these entertainment providers not seeing the growth that they should be seeing in an economic explosion that we've seen over the last ten years and it's because you've created this environment of people who want to get promoted every 9 months they move around all over the place and they don't care about the customer acquisition cost and the lifetime value of a customer what they care about is hitting their number for the next year
0: right
1: yes. that's it and it creates a problem so i would i would strongly encourage if there's any college students or college grads or people looking to get into sports out there you know unless you are a salesperson and i am a salesperson unless you are a salesperson ticket sales is not for you Right. Don't do it. Yes. No. Because I hate
0: having to tell the kids too that like you're gonna have, you have to probably the road in is through ticket sales and if you don't like it you're gonna burn out because quickly it's. Awful way, like I don't mind selling. I'm like, you know, I'm fairly competent at it. Even I'm not as awesome as you at,
1: are at it. Like, I'm
0: not as a, I'm not a legend like you, but I am. I definitely can hold my
1: own. But a legend it, in my own mind. But you know, the other <laughs> thing about it is, you know, when I look at the ticket sales programs, like you really, when you're coming out, need to be looking at. You know, something that's going to enable you to grow into the kind of executive that you're going to want to be. And that kind of executive, somebody who's going to be curious across the board, right? That's always looking for other ways of doing things. That's always trying to understand that, you know, the way it was done is already passed. That the yes. people who are making real money, the, you know, the Peter Thiel from, think what you want about Peter Thiel. But the people who are going from zero to one, the Naval Ravikants, the people who are creating wealth and creating value, they're doing new things. They're, they're learning what's happening somewhere else and they're bringing it into the space. And and you can really see that across sports. In general, right? Yes. Like, for example, the analogy that uses the Bus family is having trouble right now th- as the Lakers competing in an NBA where the Bus family was dominant for years. Well, it's because a lot of these other owners are coming in, and they're coming in from different industries where they mm-hmm. have just gigantic analytic backgrounds where they understand how to diversify, where they're bringing in people who aren't, quote, unquote, sports people, right. and they're dominating. Mm-hmm. And, and look, I mean, the Golden State Warriors were a laughingstock until the team was sold in 2012, and now look at where they are. And so what I would say to those, those young professionals coming in is you really need to understand what you want to become and who's really pushing the envelope. Because the unfortunate reality, and it's kind of a cheap whipping boy, but it's true, is putting 20 kids into a room and having them hammer the phone doesn't it, work. It doesn't
0: work. You're, no market's that, big enough for that. And, no and who answers big enough the for that? phone anymore?
1: No no, one. And, and it, it's especially with ticket sales. And, and the issue is if you are going to cold call. I'm one of the few guys left out there. Who thinks cold calling actually does work? Mm-hmm. But it only works in a, in a unique circumstance. In our business, where customer acquisition cost is fifty thousand dollars, where you know we sell lifetime value customers that are well over a million, mm-hmm. it's it's a it's an add-on that makes sense for us. We can actually have a room full of people, but we don't have these you know the 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 data and analytics on these teams. You know the, a lot of them are, are puffing their chest up and saying you know we analytically sell to people, we engage, we do this and that, and they don't. And they underestimate, they, they underinvest in how this works. And it just doesn't work, especially when you're talking about a transactional sale like sports tickets or season tickets or the like. It's just not, it's not valuable and it doesn't work. And yeah. it's not going to get, it's not going to get these kids where they want to go.
0: No, they, I, I tell the kids, like, and this is something I, I wasn't even aware of was that, um, sometimes even I've taken too much of a focus on sales as far as like the way that you would traditionally think of it in the sports business. And I've had to rethink the way. And I am completely driven now by the idea that like, Everybody in who's in tickets needs to be a better marketer because this 100%. marketing that drives the ticket sale, mm-hmm. because you can't sell enough at scale to ever fill your building without a not good not marketing engine. And it's you know that's just the um, that's the unless reality. your building's
1: five hundred people. Yeah. And then you can have forty sales reps, and maybe you'll get close. Yeah, but maybe you've got a twenty thousand person building. How much? Impact, how much impact are you really having? Right, exactly. Right, You're and you need to have a marketing team that's driving enough impact so that by the time they're contacting somebody, like to break down how we do it here, um, you know, a little bit. I don't want to give away too many trade secrets, but by the time one of our reps here picks up the phone and calls somebody, we know everything there is to know about that person. I mean, we're not talking about implementing a couple of you know half-assed CRMs like we see in the sports world. We're talking about we know exactly what that company owns, where they owe it, how long the terms are. We know what that person does for a living. We know the last time they've ever done anything with us, where they're clicking, why they're clicking there, Mm -hmm. what they've bought on some of the major platforms like StubHub and Ticketmaster. We know everything there is to know about it. And then in that case, Dave, we usually, 90% of the time, have an experienced salesperson calling, not a 25-year-old kid.
0: This is the biggest thing that that people – if anybody only takes one thing away from this is that if you're selling into the corporations like you and I do, mm -hmm. you got to have some experience and some business acumen behind you because you just said the word experience, right? And your guys know how to have a business conversation with the buyer on the other end because Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many offices I've sat in, how many conversations I've had with buyers at major corporations who are like, what, I just wish that when I talk to a team – it wasn't
1: like I was having to coach them through how to sell them. <laughs> but they yeah. got a nice suit on that doesn't fit
0: them. Exactly right.
1: Make sure you wear a suit and a tie, one that you can't afford and doesn't fit you, while you're banging the phones as a 22-year-old kid calling somebody who's not going to answer. Because look, the reality is, you know what I don't know if teams understand if people understand on the sales side because we run into this a lot in the SaaS engagement side and we mentor a lot of businesses. On the SaaS side, you have low end SaaS, so we're high end enterprise B two B SaaS. So for those listening who don't know what that means, you know our average customer spends between three and five thousand dollars a month with us, and they sign three year contracts. Right, so we're not looking for a transactional purchase. We're generally looking for people who are going to spend, and you know some of our larger customers spend twenty, 000, forty, 000, fifty, a hundred thousand dollars a month with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, So for us, that's that's how we're built. There's other SaaS businesses out there where they're trying to get you to sign up for a $49 license, Mm -hmm. right? And in that case, they have, you know, five, six years ago, a lot of people had a lot of success by hiring rooms full of SDRs. So. Basically, the account executive of the sports team side is called an SDR on the other side, and they hammer the phones, and then when they get a couple of leads, it becomes a numbers game, and they have these templated emails that go out and touch everybody, and they're using the marketing automation tools, and eventually you can turn over enough people on the transactional sale that it can make sense for you. Now, the problem with that is, like you said, nobody answers the phone anymore because of these. Yep. We've already pretty much reached the point where it's time to start moving on to different ways of doing it because people don't look at their emails anymore either Right. Mm-hmm. for that reason. right? It's been so oversaturated that, you know, I have a rule on my email that if you send me something that says quick question or quick meeting, I don't even get it. It just goes in my trash can, Yeah. right? It's just gotten so templated. And so when you have, you know, a 25-year-old sales kid trying to do the same thing on the sports team side, not understanding that there's multi-billion dollar SaaS, uh, multi-billion dollar SaaS and and other uh, B2B sales organizations out there that are doing the same thing, it's ineffective. It doesn't work. Yeah. Well, that's, right.
0: the, that's the thing. You have to constant your sales tactics and your mar- your prospecting and your marketing have to always be evolving, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and it seems like, my God, I look at these things and they haven't changed in a while. And it's funny that you said the templates on the sales things because everybody's <laughs> like, going, well, you know email pretty well. And I go, yeah, but the thing is, is I've never really used a template in my own business because it just doesn't work, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's like, I can tell you the touch points to make, but I can't tell you a template because a template
1: doesn't work. Because people mm-hmm. are already, they're, they're seeing right through this thing. It's- I think it's oversaturated. It worked 15 years ago.
0: Yeah. 15 oh, years ago. It worked ago, great 15 It, it was years a situation
1: ago. where I could go on Google, and you know, when I was at StubHub, long, 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 long time ago, uh, we talked about doing a lot of the things that we do here. Uh, corporate focus, enterprise B2B SaaS, talking about lifetime values of customers, that sort of thing. And the response we got from very well-known people, you would know their name, is mm-hmm. um, we spend a million dollars a month in Google Ads, why wouldn't we just spend $500,000 more? It's working. Because at the time it was. Mm-hmm. Right? At the time, that automation mattered, and it, was, it, it did give you a big advantage. But we've saturated that market now, and it's almost like it's moving back the other direction, where if you can be more tactical in your offering, if you can reach out to somebody like Dave, for example, if I can have a rep who I know, by the time he reaches out to you, is armed to say, Hey, Dave, I know you're a Spurs fan. I'm sorry about that. Uh, I see that they're playing Liverpool next week. I'll make you a bet. If Liverpool wins, uh, you owe me five minutes on the phone. But if Liverpool loses, I'll send you a... Custom-branded Spurs Yeti. Yep, That gets a response. Correct. Right? Because and, it's tactical, because we actually understand data. This isn't, you know, you bought a couple of tickets here and there, and we're going to try to put you into these, you know, large conglomerated spots and then try to sell to you. And so, you know, as you see that happening and as you see that better understanding of who the ticketer is, that goes back and ties into the question you asked earlier about what's happening next in ticket technology. I mean, the reality is... Open up a building. I want to have people come to my event. Like, look, if you get very, very lucky and you're very, very good, that can happen on occasion. But this is why Ticketmaster and this is why Axis and this is why um, I guess Flash and actually the same thing now are really talking about personalization for the security reason and for the ability to sell to you. And they're ahead of the game on that. They just are. Yeah.
0: No. It, and I think it also highlights this this idea, right? Because I think everybody confuses the idea of scale, right? So when you're talking about Oh my god, I'm going to like crush everything. I'm phone crushing, I'm doing all these things. It's cuz I want to scale my ticket sales and you're talking about a highly personalized thing, right? Mm-hmm. That's why marketing has to drive the ticket sales process because you can't scale an individual ticket sale. It's just, it's just not yeah. happening. And yeah. if you're going to sell to the B2B audience, you can't sell to them with like some cheesy like templated email or like an email blast. It has to be personal, it has to be relevant, and it has to be somewhat tactical like as you described it because it's tough to get those people's attention. It's tough to get to in contact with them. But if you mm-hmm. do and you know what you're talking about, then you can make sales. But it ain't easy. Mm-hmm. And it's becoming harder mm-hmm. and harder. So you have to be more and more creative. I, I, this is like half the things I do now. It's like I'm going... Everything you know about sales, it may have worked five or ten years ago, but it's all different now. And if you aren't prepared for it to be different, then you may as well go look for something else to do because you're not going to make it. And like the, the mm-hmm. example of... Let me make a bet with you about the Spurs and Liverpool match is great because, you know, you're also going to send them the Spurs Custom Yeti anyway because that's just the smart thing to oh, yeah, do I as am. a business person, mm-hmm. right? I
1: mean, that's just the way it is. I, I'm going to get something on your desk that has my logo on it. That's exactly right. At some point, Well, going to happen. Yeah, it's like – so there's this thing. This, this is
0: a good example since you brought up the, the sales mechanism. I did this in an anthology that should be out in the next week or so, which I asked you to be a part of, right? But I told my wife, I was like, she was asking me, like, well, what are you doing with this thing? I go, well, really, it was like a way for me to reach out to like 25 or 30 people that might not necessarily talk to me otherwise. And now I have multiple touch points to talk to them yep. and that's work with works. them, right? And she's like, well, that's great. I should do that for for my like for my e-discovery practice. And I was like, well, you absolutely should. And, yeah. and if, it's not hard, but you have to be creative and you have to be thoughtful. And then you have to be persistent, which you should yeah. be doing. Now, but let me ask you this, because there's like, we kind of talked about, covered a lot here, and what it is, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is how you have developed, number one, what's it like, you know, some of the ups and downs of managing a startup, but one of the other things that I really like about what you guys do is you have created a culture that I don't think uh, it passes... The smell test of culture it's not so like it, it's more meaningful than just like look at our culture and we're going to clip your tie and yeah. put the wwe yeah. belt on so no, let, let, we'll let me do ask that. you about your culture and how, how you built that because i think that's um, a big buzzword for people
1: yeah it is it's a really big buzzword i think um you know it's interesting we get asked to lecture on it a lot we've won a lot of awards on on culture and you know we take a lot of pride in the fact that we don't do any pay-to-play awards uh we get a lot of those and we just we're, we're not a part of that um You know, I think it's funny. It it, it all starts from a really interesting premise of, you know, first of all, it's curiosity and just reading every leadership book there is. I mean, you and I, you're you're somebody like me who reads three to five books every two weeks, right? Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to suck up as much information as I can because I want to understand how different people are having success and where this works. And so what we really sat down to when we understood culture here was we want to make sure that everybody feels engaged in what they're doing here, that they believe in what they're doing here, that it's tied to what it's doing. So let me take a step back and understand this and, and explain it so that people understand how we got to where we are. So I, a long, long time ago, worked for AEG. AEG was about 300 people at the time. And uh, my job was fantastic. I loved it. It was me. I was sitting next to Kelly Cheesman. We were both sales reps. He's the COO of AEG now. Everybody's moved so far up. My boss, the director of ticket sales, was Chris McGowan, who's now the CEO of the Portland Trailblazers. So I was definitely in the right place. Um, If you had asked me at that point, how would you rank your job on zero to 10 scale? I would have said, it's an eight out of 10, I loved it. I mean, I got to go to the Staples Center all the time, I had tickets, it was wonderful. And then I got to StubHub and the world was in color. It had been in black and white before. And it was in color because it really aligned with everything that I wanted to be in my future life. Right? It offered a lot of autonomy, it offered me the ability to grow a business from scratch. I mean, I'll tell that story in a second, how we helped build the StubHub corporate sales. It is, it is fascinating how we got there. We basically were doing marketing automation before I showed up. But that, what I really understood there was if all of these passions align and this respect aligns, hours go out the window, compensation becomes easy because we're all aligned with where we're trying to go. And now it becomes something that you're passionate about and you love. And, and that was, you know, I worked for Colin Evans at the time and Jeff Flora, and I, I respect those guys greatly. They're some of the smartest people I know, and, they're, and Colin's a dear friend, and Jeff and I keep up. But what we really looked at here is we said, okay, how do we translate that here? Because... I think the misnomer people have is they look back on my StubHub time and they think, well, everybody probably loves StubHub. You guys were growing hand over fist and you were making a lot of money. You know, I was a 25-year-old kid making $200,000 a year in sales. It was great. But
0: but the truth is no, they, probably, that's not true. That's not There's always happening. somebody who's not going to yeah. like it.
1: The truth is there were eight people doing my job and then two overseeing them, and we went through 23 people in two years because – Everybody else had a, really, had a problem with that job. They didn't, it didn't fit with what they wanted to be. So for us, what's most important about culture for us is transparency first and foremost. We are off of general Schwarzkopf's. We always tell the troops the truth. We share our financials with our staff. We share everything with them. The next thing we did is we really understood how we run an autonomous business, and we're very straightforward about it. We have 15 tenants that we have in every office that we have. We send it to everybody that starts here. And basically the way it's worded is not, we're not trying to be liked, Dave. We're trying to be loved. And in order to be loved by some, you have to be unliked by others. You can't be liked by everybody. Then you don't stand for anything. So what we really do is we, we make it very clear that this is how we make decisions here. You know, examples of the tenants are very simple. It's never ask anybody to do what you wouldn't do yourself, mm-hmm. right? We don't have executives flying first class here. They stay in the same hotels. They do the same thing. For us, our, our, the tenant that draws a lot of people here and sometimes draws the eye of the others is sales rules all. Mm-hmm. If you're not selling here, you support sales. That's what we do, right? Tie goes to sales. And we have a number of these different tenets, and we really make sure when we bring people on that we're aligning with what they're trying to do in the future, and we're making it clear that we don't care that everybody likes each other. We really hope they do, but we do care that you respect one another, right? Right, and that we understand that we're all going in the same direction. And in order to do that, there are some ugly things that come along that. If you really want to build a culture that matters, you have to have turnover. You just have to. And the reality is most startups and most teams are terrified of turnover, Right. They, you're doing people a favor when you say this doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Right. For That's us right. or for you. Yeah. And and the, the interesting thing is, like, I'd like to say that I believe that everything that we're doing here is right. Look, we're doing the best that we can. But we win a lot of awards and our glass doors. Great. Yeah. People seem to really enjoy it. Um and that's what we're really trying to put together as, as, as a family here and as a culture. It's not about, you know, free food. We have all of that stuff. We have the free food. We have the, uh, the staff outings. We have the, we pay for your gym and your golf memberships and whatever book you want to buy. You know, we have a book club. We have all that stuff that everybody has. I don't think that's what really matters. I think what really matters is how much you trust and respect the person that you work for, mm-hmm. right? Like my father worked for Steve Jobs and then he worked for uh, John Chambers. And if you ask him the difference between the two, John Chambers, he respected him above anything. A right. man would admit when he was right and wrong. He knew he was a servant leader, and he knew he was there to let people do their job and to do it right. And that's what we're trying to do here. We try to create a position where we bring you in because you're better than us at this job, and we're going to let you do it, yep. and we're going to serve you as long as you do it. And then if you don't, we have to protect the um, we have to protect the rest of the business. Like we have to be in a situation where we're all rowing in the same direction. And so it's a very hard thing to do. And, you know, the last thing I'd add on culture, I like talking about it a lot because it's like basically what we do all day here. Um, You just have to remove yourself from it. If you want to create a great culture, you don't get to be a part of it as a CEO. And that's a very lonely place to be that I think a lot of startup (laughs) founders have a really hard time with. I mean, I've been doing this 11 years now, so we get called into a lot of these different businesses and you get all these CEOs who really have a hard time separating those things. Yeah, that's right. You do not get to be a part of the culture. If you create it, because you are the one who's making the decisions when there's disagreements in it and when things are moving forward, it doesn't mean I'm not friends with people who like work here. I love them. I do. But I understand there's conversations happening about me without me there. Correct. I understand yes. that these things are happening. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just part of the cost. So, you know, we're really proud of what we've done here and, and in the startup culture. And that's what we've seen. But look, it came with a lot of bumps.
0: I, I think that's I mean, that's to me, that's that means a lot because, you um, you know, it, it, you, you explain it in a very honest way that doesn't always come through, and a lot of times everybody sugarcoats everything, and they never oh, talk man. about, <laughs> and they never talk about this because it is like right. be, doing what you do as a CEO or like what any of the CEOs we know do. It's extremely lonely, right? That's, oh yeah, that's mm-hmm. this is the value. This is the thing I've learned the most is that one of the biggest values that I bring to people is that I'm a peer to like someone like you, right? Exactly, and I'm external. Mm-hmm. Right, so then it's like you have somebody that you can talk through these things because you don't Mm -hmm. really have anybody else you can talk through, and and a lot of people don't want to admit that because you want the responsibility, you want the you want or you want the title, you want all the 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 responsibility a little bit. Eh, I don't know so much, but but yeah. yeah. So why
1: YPO exists? That's why Vistage exists. It's Why all these things exist?
0: Yeah, it's a really tough position, and and it really was nice that you explained it. So you know so. In depth, because I don't think people hear that enough. Um, which is like another yeah, thing you I, you were going. I to think s-
1: people also struggle a little bit with, um, you know, a lot of times when we when we're interviewing people, we I ask the same eight questions in every interview I ask, and one of them is, you know, hey Dave, when I when I do my reference checks on you, mm-hmm. um, and I'm not going to call the people you give me because I know they're going to tell me you're awesome. Uh, I'm going to find somebody who likes you, and I'm going to get them to tell me very charmingly something that they don't like about working with you. Mm-hmm. Right, And yeah. people are always a little bit taken back by that. And we have to kind of like reassure them that, hey, listen, leadership is taking people somewhere else. Everybody doesn't want to go somewhere else. Yeah. I'm not saying if I find somebody that doesn't like you, that's a problem. I kind of hope I do find people who don't like yeah. you. Yeah, that's right. Because if you're breaking things, that, I mean, I'll, I'll spare everybody the, uh, the suspense here. If you're looking for people who don't like me, there are plenty of them, right? <laughs> uh, there, I, I, <laughs> I know there are plenty are of them up, up there for me. <laughs> yeah, I hope there are more that do. But I think that, you know, the unfortunate reality for a lot of people, especially in leadership positions, they don't tend to accept that, right? If you that, take a
0: stance, somebody is not going to like it. That's just exactly. that's just life, right? I what I
1: just said will yeah. lead people to attack me. Like, you can't have that kind of autonomy. It leads to this and that, and it's all bullshit. Uh, yeah, okay. Like, it's, variety is a spice of life. You're going to do that? I'm going to do this.
0: Yes, that's, a, that's exactly right. I mean, that, right. It, it's, it's tough to explain these things to people. Um, you know, and, and, but I think it's also very good to shine a light on it. So let me ask you this too. I know that like now you're in a pretty good spot. You have like some huge, huge clients. But one of the things we were mentioning when we were leading into this too is like you you talked about some of the challenges to getting to the point you were in. And one of the other Mm -hmm. things that I don't think gets highlighted nearly enough is, you know, kind of like the growth, you know, how to grow a business, right? Number one. Mm -hmm. And then number two, it's like, how do you deal with adversity? Because I think we live in a culture now where everybody highlights the successes and nobody talks about the failures and I'm happy to talk about failures all day long because I mean, everybody thinks like, Oh man, Dave must've like always been on these like hot streaks." And I was like, Oh no, Dave has had some like really, really fallow periods and I just keep showing up. That's like the only thing (laughs) I tell my my wife, I go, I'm really good at being consistent.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, look, I have a mentor who's uh Somebody I found who's run a number of businesses, he's sold about 20 businesses. He's very, very well-off guy. He always says the number one thing is still being there. Just be alive, because you never know what's going to happen. I mean, look at Airbnb with the uh, Obama-Os and the things that they were doing. Uh, if you read the history of Airbnb, you'll realize that staying alive is one of the more important things. So, you know, we've uh, we've been very um, very blessed and very lucky in some of the things that we've done over the last, um, you know, 10 years. What, what surprises people when we talk about our business is that we were actually founded in late 2007, and people say, "Well, you really don't have um, as much growth for a few years." there. somebody that I would expect to have for somebody who's been in business for as long as you have, and the reason is because we basically false started here. Yeah. Uh, we started the business in October of 2007, and we had a um, we had a uh, angel investor that was our original funding, and everything went fine for the first nine months as we were building out the software, and then the angel investor went broke in the economic meltdown, yeah. and uh, I remember the phone call. Uh, he called me. I was I was sitting in my you know, 800 square foot condo in Wesley village. Um, we were living off my wife's, uh, my wife's teacher salary at the time. I was driving a Pontiac Grand Prix that I had to tape the window up because I didn't have the money to fix it. And, um, he just basically called and said, I'm out. Sorry. I know I owe you $250,000, but you're not getting it. And I know you don't have it to sue me. So good luck. And, um, you know, that story sounds cool now because there's jobs all over the place, but in, in October of 2008, there's nowhere to go. No, right? We had no money. We had nowhere to go. We had nothing to do. And I remember sitting, and you talked about it being a lonely job. I remember sitting on the, on the floor of that little condo and my wife came out and and she said, you look like something's wrong. And one thing I've always tried to do is shield my family from the downside of this, because it's the risk that I'm (laughs) willing to take. Right. And and look, I'm not going to tell anybody how to handle their situation, but my wife and I are a team and we divide how we do things. And I greatly respect what she does and she's, she, me, and I just don't need to create any more stress for her. I didn't even tell my co-founders. I was flying to Houston the next day to sell Centerpoint Energy on a Super Bowl deal. We had Dave, We had $42,000 in the bank as a company and nine employees. We weren't going to make payroll. Uh, we could make the next one, but we couldn't make the one after it. And uh, If we won the deal, they were going to pay up front, so we would have had enough money to keep the lights on for six months. Uh, if we lost the deal, who knows? I went by myself. Pitched against Prime Sport and Sam and all the moneyed up guys. People think that we're this big player now. In 2008, we were, you know, eight or nine people. Ticket OS was under Razor Gator. They had 43 million dollars. They had Kleiner Perkins in, a, in Steamboat behind them. Uh, Ovations had been around for years. They had a bunch of big customers. And I'll never forget it. I mean, walking through the Houston uh, airport, you know, Sarah Palin was giving her speech. She had just been introduced, or she was doing the RNC speech or something. And we won. And I called. Uh, Joe and Eric, my co-founders, and said, "Look, it's up to us. Do we want to just take, do we want to do this deal, take the little money we have, and try to find something else to do, or do we want to keep doing this?" And and really, like I'd like to sound like we're those heroic gambling takers, and we're not. Um, I think Malcolm Gladwell really nailed it in. Um, he wrote a short paper called "A Sure Thing" that every entrepreneur should read. Um, that entrepreneurs are not cowboys; that they're calculated risk takers. And we just couldn't accept that spreadsheets and waste was going to continue to be the way of the day. We, we knew somebody was going right. to do what we were doing, and we just figured we had to hold on to do it. And so we went to our staff, and we told them we can't pay you. We'll pay you $1,500 a month until we make some money. And um, we, we closed the office, and we put all the furniture in. And Dave, I I can't tell you a lot about 2008. I don't remember a lot about it. but. I can tell you which way the wind was blowing at the public storage facility on Van Nuys Boulevard in Sherman Oaks. When we put that furniture away, I looked at Eric and I wasn't going to see it again. It was, we weren't going to see that furniture again. And, um, you know, I'm glad that happened now. Um, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. We were totally broke. I had left a job at StubHub that was paying me a ton of money. They gave Mm -hmm. me four counter offers when I left. But, uh, you know, from there, it really just, it, it taught us to be responsible with our money, to believe in what we believe in, and then we found terrific investors in 2009. They invested in 20, 2010, and, you know, there's been a lot of battles from here on then. I mean, I, we've had conversations where they've talked about removing me from my position in 2012 and, you know, a couple times from there, and you just you just stick with it, yeah. and if you really believe in your idea, it, it works out, yeah. right? And so, you know, we, we talk about that a lot because we want people to understand that, you know, this is how much we care about this and how important it is to us, and you know, people laugh when I I make the joke that I'm filling up with gas at Chevron on my Verizon phone, wearing my Adidas shoes with Continental tire rubber. Those are all our customers. Yeah, they're the people who believed in us when we didn't have two nickels to rub together. Right, and uh, you know that's 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 where we're going from here. So no, we've definitely not been the the major player <laughs> from the beginning. Uh, it's been good since though.
0: Yeah, no, but I, I mean, thank you for sharing that story too. I I I like it when people hear. You know, like you have to push through. Right. I was having a conversation with a mutual friend of ours and we were talking about like the big issue is being able to manage risk. And like you're not like you met the Malcolm Gladwell thing. You, you, won't, you, me, we, we, I'm not like an extreme risk taker. It's just like I believe in the value I create for people. Yeah. And it's you know, it is risky. Right. Because, I mean, it is like you, you know, it can all come crashing down at any moment
1: but you you have to have the willingness to take that risk too right i think one of the big problems and we were talking about this earlier is you have a lot of these sports incubators out there these teams that are getting involved and it's these people that are kind of like halfway going in and there's an old saying in surfing i love surfing it's my favorite thing to do go or don't yeah but halfway is where people get hurt Uh uh-huh right yeah go ride the wave or don't ride it but if you halfway go that's when you start getting hurt and there's a lot of that happening in the marketplace today. A lot of people who say, I, I want to go try to do this entrepreneurial thing, but I can't like go of the, the security, you right? Gotta, the have, security blanket go. is too much. Like we're all raised in this matrix where it's, what am I going to do if I don't have this security blanket, right? right? Mm-hmm. Well, then maybe it's not for you, right? And that's that's not a good or bad thing. My dad worked for Cisco, Apple, and HP over the course of 40 years. Those are three of the biggest businesses you can. He's the opposite of me. Yeah. And I love him, and he's, he gave us a life that I, I'm thankful for every day. But, um, yeah, if you're going to startups, you've got to be willing to go. Go yeah. or don't. Mm-hmm. But this halfway stuff, like, first of all, you're not going to make it. Secondly, I'm not going to give you any of my time, and investors aren't going to give you any money. Right. That's exactly right.
0: Yeah. It's, your
1: ability – I mean this is like a good lesson for everybody. It's like if you can't
0: go – if you can't, don't go all in, that is where you get completely screwed. Because those times when I've been tiptoeing, those are the ones where I've, I've had missteps. And Lord always. knows I've had them. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> well, let me I've ask, made a lot of mistakes. Oh, yeah. Well, let me ask you this before we go. Tell me what three books are that like I should be reading right now that maybe I didn't read. Since we always do this on Twitter, we might as well do this like live on the on the podcast for everybody. Live on tape. I'm
1: trying to think. Um, You're well-read, so it's hard to – you're the one that challenged me the most because – so I'll I'll answer it really simply with, first of all, for the people who are listening to three books that I think they absolutely have to read uh, business books-wise if it's going to change the way you're going to approach everything. That's probably better than trying to teach me the book. I'll (laughs) do that first, and then I'll tell you three books that I enjoyed. Um, One, Hard Thing About Hard Things, I think, is the best business book ever ever written by Ben Horowitz. Uh, He is one of the founders of Andreessen Horowitz. The first third of the book is a little bit slow, but it is just absolutely phenomenal. If I had read that, it would have saved me a lot of time, money, and energy. Um, you and I both are big espousers of Crossing the Chasm. Yep. You cannot mm-hmm. work in technology without reading Crossing the Chasm. It's just, you know, it, it's the most effective business book you're going to have uh, when it comes to how you approach things. And then one and, that might surprise people up. is how— it holds up. And it holds up. He wrote it in 1984, and it's yeah. all applicable today. And, and you know who needs to read that more than anything is sports salespeople because oh, yeah. it applies to marketing, sales, crossing over the standard curve, et cetera. And then the one that might surprise people, uh, "How Champions Think" by Bob Bertella. Oh, I love that um, one. That's a, that was a phenomenal great one. book. Absolutely phenomenal. We have everybody that that that, re, that comes here read it. Um, you're a tough one because I got to find books that are a little bit. Um, uh, did you read "Barbarian Days"? Finnegan's book no barbarian
0: days let's see
1: they got- barbarian days it's kind of a modern day jack kerouac um okay. bill finnegan is a writer for the new yorker who grew up in hawaii and he basically spends the beginning of his life traveling the world and uh traveling the oh world I, have yes, I have it yes i have it i have it downstairs okay great <laughs> absolutely phenomenal book um one that is can't slip them yeah, past exactly. me yeah exactly um the belichick book by um Rappaport? is that his name that wrote it um where is it? Um, Belichick by O'Connor by Ian yeah. O'Connor. Okay, yep. I am um, not a New England Patriots fan right. at all. Um, it is fascinating to read how Bill became who he is. Right. Um, it's almost as eye-opening as like when you read Jobs for the first time, right, and okay. realized like how Jobs really was wasn't what you thought he was. Um, you suggested Thinking in Bets to me, so I can suggest that one. Um, There's a book that's not a business book that's out there. It's called The Happiness Trap. Oh, uh, by uh, by Russ Harris. Oh, Russ Harris. Uh, By Russ Harris. I don't care for the last third of the book, but the first two thirds of the book I thought was very interesting. Um, I try to read as many psychology books as I can, just because unfortunately Mm -hmm. that's what it's like running a business, right? I. Mm -hmm. It's just uh, forty and fifty year olds are really just thirteen year olds that are you know thirty years older. That's exactly right. (laughs) With different toys. (laughs) That, that's yeah, exactly. all they have is different all the same jealousies all the same insecurities all the same fear i mean most of my job i would describe as managing fear every day
0: yes that's that, that would um that that totally makes sense to me um well i want to thank you for doing this where can people find you on the internet
1: so i'm uh, at tony Knopp on twitter um apologies if i offend anybody on there um otherwise you know uh, I'm if they on follow Instagram. me and they listen to me how much more offended can they get yeah exactly <laughs> um uh, I'm on Instagram at Tony Knopp and uh, I'm on Facebook, but I don't really use it. Yeah. Um, I think uh, I think I'm bad. it's mostly kids' pictures. If you want to look at pictures of my kids, follow me on Facebook. Otherwise, you're not going to be very entertained. And look, you know, it's I really appreciate you doing this. I love following you guys on Twitter and uh, and, and conversating back and forth. I mean, it's it's just fascinating to see what's happening next in this market. Yeah, and no. who's going to win?
0: I, you know, thank you for doing this because I mean, I really like, this has been one of the really like great joys of doing this podcast is really getting to, um, expose people to some of the conversations I just have in general. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, so this has been really great.
1: Oh, I very much appreciate it. Yeah. Hopefully we'll do it.
0: Once again, I want to thank Tony Knopp from Ticket Manager for being my guest on the Business of Fun podcast. I thought it was great. Let me know what you thought. Because You can send me an email. It is my name, Dave, at DaveWakeman.com. You can let me know what you thought of my conversation with Tony, what you thought about any of the podcasts I've been doing. Um, give me your suggestions for future guests, any of these things. To find out what I'm up to, you can visit my website. It's www.DaveWakeman.com. You'll find my blog. Um, spoiler alert, there's a big announcement coming up uh, the next week or so. Don't tell anybody, but it involves me in Australia. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn. Just search for my name. You can follow me on Twitter. It's at David Wakeman. And if you do know the person who has at Dave Wakeman, let me know. Tell him I need it, right? If you dig the podcast, I'd like you to do me a favor. Can you send it to a colleague or a friend or somebody who you think would find value from either this conversation with Tony or any of the other conversations that I've had? Um, if you're also inclined, I'd love it if you'd subscribe. That way you make sure you never miss an episode of the Business of Fun. And if you're so inclined, leave a review. Both of those actions help make sure that people can discover the podcast and it makes sure that I still have am incentivized to continue to, con- to deliver these conversations to you. Um, as always, I want to thank my friends at Booking Protect for being uh, fantastic partners uh, and just all around great people. To find out how you and your organization can partner with Booking Protect to deliver the most innovative digital customer service experience in tickets, a better buying experience for your customers, and how you and your organization can create a brand new stream of revenue for you, visit www.bookingprotect.com. Once again, that's www.bookingprotect.com, the global leaders in refund protection. Let them be your partner. And finally, thank you for being here. And until I talk to you again, take it easy. See you soon.